The reading of the scriptures will be reading from Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. I invite your uh, reverent hearing of God's word here in Romans chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have uh, all been taught that no man has uh, ever seen God. Uh, and that is certainly true. But we have seen his uh, evidence in love. Preeminently, the love of Christ and rendering his life, the one for the many. But more importantly, in the life of the church, uh, brotherly love. And it is, I think, important to recognize that uh, Satan floods the world with counterfeits, uh, counterfeits that mimic our faith, and we live in a world that is full of counterfeit uh, love on behalf of people. You see it everywhere. And so Paul brings us uh, a measure of uh, the love of uh, brothers, uh, love of people within the church and uh, love of people within the church to those who are outside of the church as an evidence that as uh, the world uh, sees a measure of that love, they see in a measure, even though darkened, the very presence of God who is love. Uh, in the three verses before us, uh, Paul gives us a universal and perpetual obligation. It's also an extension, I think, of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, we're not to be conformed to the world. We, we should forsake uh, cheap uh, counterfeits. We should seek the real thing. And we should be transformed. And the Bible speaks to us about the transforming nature of the love of brethren and the love that we should display before the world so that men and women can see a measure of God. Uh, in the first verse, verse 8, uh, we are reminded from Paul that love is an obligation. Uh, the, uh, the verbal form is that of an imperative. It, it, is, it is a command. Uh, previously, we, uh, we learned that uh, we have an obligation to the state and to society to pay our debts, uh, and that is reinforced here. Uh, owe, owe nothing to anyone. Uh, literally, the text is, owe nothing to no one. Of course, in English, we are taught not to use uh, double negatives, but uh, it is simply pressing upon us the necessity of meeting one's obligation. It's very interesting in the Greek text, uh, anyone occurs first in word order. 
one of the ways uh, Greek writers would have of uh, emphasizing a point is by shifting word order around. And if they put a word first, it brings uh, dramatic presentation. You and I sometimes do that on our computers. We might underline something or put it in bold. But Greek authors simply put the word first. And it's important to recognize that our text is not forbidding debt. It's just reinforcing the importance of repaying the debts that we incur with one exception. A debt that can never be repaid. And that, of course, is to love. We have an obligation to love. And it is an obligation that is enduring, perpetual, one that we can never totally fulfill, but nonetheless, to love within the church. Uh, if you will, almost as an imitation of heaven. And just as importantly, that the world might see us imitate heaven as we love one another and love outsiders. Uh, it is uh, stated as a universal, expressing our horizontal relationships with one another. And Paul gives us a reason to do that. Uh, to always be loving uh, as an obligation we can never totally and fully fulfill. We will never pay off that debt to one another, to those outside the church. Uh, for one reason, Paul says here in the text, the uh, one loving his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Of course, you know this uh, in terms of the Old Testament. Maybe a conceptual allusion here. You know the first table of the law, we're taught to love God. There's only one God. We are to give our affections totally and entirely to Him alone. We share Him with no other we give our affections uh, to the one true divine. Our world is totally sharing its affection with uh, any presumed deity that is, of course, false, but we reserve our affections totally and entirely unto him. And then, as you know, in the second table, the law would love our neighbor. Uh, the Jews, of course, in the Old Testament were reminded to love the stranger, and the sojourner, uh, Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, but in the New Testament, we are too. Uh, and as we love, and as we try to meet this obligation as imperfectly as we uh, or sometimes want to do, we meet every obligation of the law. And I would remind you, uh, it's, it's, it is an imitation of heaven. And it is as one way that the world can see uh, a measure of the presence of the great God that we love and serve. And the world needs to see this. Uh, they need to see a measure, darkened though it may be, of the presence of heaven. That perhaps God might use that to open their eyes, to seek heaven and the only true Savior and Redeemer. Well, in verses 9 to 10, uh, this, Paul's going to lay out the specifics uh, of love that are in the Old Testament moral law, but also uh, 
that that love is valid uh, for us as well. Every day it's valid for us. An obligation that we can never totally fulfill or meet. Uh, it is, uh, I would remind you as an aside, a beautiful expression of the continuity between the Testaments. Because same love that was taught to the children of Israel is now being taught to the church. Uh, Paul is uh, quoting Moses from Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Context again, the second table of the law. Uh, it's very interesting here that Paul only references four uh, of the six commandments, uh, leaving out uh, don't bear false witness and uh, duty to parents. Uh, but in the New Testament, these are covered elsewhere. For example, Matthew chapter 19, verse 18, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2. But the, the greater importance of his affirmation is that the moral law is still valid. And the singular reality of the moral law to love, to love one's neighbor with a binding authority. Uh, perhaps some of you are like me. I... Um, Sometimes I have to remind myself, uh, you know, pay your debts, uh, and so you work very hard to pay them all so that you're done with it. Here's a debt you can never repay. You're never done with it. As you know, Old Testament uh, civil and ceremonial law has been fulfilled by Christ so that they no longer have continuing authority over us. Uh, but the moral law is a perpetual requirement. It, it abides with us still. And Paul collapses the entirety of the second table of the law in another imperative, you shall love your neighbors yourself. Uh, this too comes from the Old Testament. Citation from uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Notice Paul's uh, not only uh, an expression of the continuity between the Testaments, but his high regard for the Word of God. As it was then, it is so now. Uh, in that text, Moses is summarizing uh, the demands of love. And he, he tells his people that there's a number of things that you, you must not do and that you must do. For example, if, if you go out to the harvest, uh, you, you cannot cut your entire field. You leave some for the poor as an expression of love. They're in need. You have an ability to help them. And so certain portions of the field, like the corners, you were to leave for them uh, to partake of the provisions of God as an expression of love. Today, we harvest everything. We want to plant every square inch. Again, expression of love in the Old Testament. There's another one that I think is always reminded of, particularly in my own life. Uh, if a tradesman comes to your home and does work, Old Testament says, pain. I find the tradesmen that come to my home now I want to be paid immediately. I wonder why that is. 
Well, you know why that is. Because the tradesman leaves and you get the bill and you simply put it on the shelf and forget about it. You've got other things to pay off. No, the Old Testament says, love the tradesman, pain. You hired him, rendered to him his due as an expression of love. Don't, uh, don't harm, in the context, Moses says, uh, someone who is challenged physically or mentally. Give special heed to them. It's an expression of love. Tenderness of love. It's very interesting in this citation of the Old Testament, Paul leaves off uh, the words of Moses, I am the Lord. Uh, but we know that he is the origin of the imperative. He's the author. It's also, I think, a signal reminder that the Lord God of heaven is pressing upon us this continuing obligation to love and to love perpetually and to recognize it's a debt we will never close out until the Savior comes for us. So that love sums up the moral law and meets all of the demands in one. If you will, the six uh, aspects of the second table of law are collapsed into one, namely uh, love. One of my favorite uh, Presbyterian theologians, uh, John Murray, says love gives to the law the full measure of its demands. Uh, and, and really, if you think about the Old Testament, Moses is just throwing out a number of examples, but they're all encompassing. So it's summed up in just simply the imperative to love. And the comparative, as we love ourselves, encompasses a standard in our treatment to others. The final specific is love works no evil or does no wrong to one's neighbor. I think this helps define uh, the comparative love your neighbor as yourself. So we would not do evil to ourselves. We should not do evil to ourselves. So in like manner, we shouldn't do evil to a neighbor. Conclusion of the matter is that love fulfills the law. Uh, the imperatives of uh, the Old Testament moral law are oftentimes uh, in the negative. Uh, here, the positive reality in one, one word, love. Uh, kind of begs the question, though, does it not? If Satan has flooded the world with counterfeits of love, then what is true love? How do we truly love our neighbor and love ourselves? Well, we should love ourselves because uh, we're God's creation. He made us. We should honor his creation. And we should uphold that so that we can continue to serve him all the days of our life so as to fulfill the first table of the law. But let's, let's look at some illustrations. If you would turn with me, if you would, to Galatians uh, chapter 5 and verse 13. For you were called to freedom, uh, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
the context is Paul is advancing an argument against the libertine. Libertine says something to the fact, well, I'm saved by grace. I can do anything I want to do because I've been saved by grace. Paul is constraining uh, that errant theology. Because there are constraints, especially in the exercise of one's liberty. So that love is a constraining force in the exercise of our liberty. Because we put other, other people before us. Uh, love doesn't always seek its own. It seeks, on occasion, the interests of others as an expression of the great love of heaven where our Savior set aside his own interests uh, to redeem his own. Again, as you know, he left his heavenly environment, was under no obligation to do so. He, he left the continual praise of heaven to set all that aside to serve the interests of others, namely his church, his friends, and to render a sacrifice of the one for the many. So that love is a boundary around some behaviors. Uh, our, our culture, sadly in America, is becoming more and more libertine. Uh, there are no boundaries. Do whatever it is you want to do. If you want to remake yourself, remake yourself. In the church, we imitate heaven by putting boundaries around our behavior. We seek the interests of others sometimes before our own. Something of the reality, I think, that's illustrated. Perhaps the greatest definition of love in the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. Verses 4 to 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is not jealous. The reminder of constraining actions and dealing with one another. I think personally the world is starved to see a measure of kindness, patience, and then there's always someone that says, well, that's great, power sock, but that never works. Paul concludes that by saying, love never fails. You practice those things, and that love will never fail. It will advance. And it is true, I think, that men and women and boys and girls will see a measure of heaven and the love of heaven for its own. Uh, Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 14. It's a beautiful reminder of a measure of love. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. This is a fashion metaphor. We're to wear love. I'd remind you within the context, there's 
divine resource in verse 10, we have put on the new self. But Paul is reminding us that uh, we have been made new, and part of our being made new is that we're to wear love. We're part of the new creation. We should manifest it. The greater contextual key is the centrality of Christ is to be seen in our relationships. There are two participles that modify the imperative uh, to put on love, that display the practical reality of how we put on love. The first is bearing with one another. Yeah, I know, sometimes patience gets worn thin. You want to lash out in anger. Paul's reminding us to wear love. Second is uh, forgiving one another as the Lord forgave us. Uh, reminding that we should build a bridge to others because our Savior built one to us. But I love, I love the metaphor, the fashion statement. Uh, we, we follow fashion, don't we? Yeah, we, we look in magazines to find uh, perhaps what uh, maybe society is wearing or uh, what the new fashion is. Um, some great athletic star wins a gold medal in women's figure skating and the ladies want to copy her hair. Uh, whatever the case might be. We, we, there's nothing wrong with loving fashion. But preeminently, we should wear the fashion of love. My problem with fashion is I'm always out of style. But, but love is never out of style. You know, go through your wardrobe and wife says, Phil, don't wear that. Please, Phil, don't wear that. But always, always wear love. Because it is timeless. I've learned that part of the genius of fashion is wear those things that are never out of date. And love is never out of date. It never has a self-destruct date on it. It never has a date to discard. Always wear it. That the world might see an imitation of heaven in the church. And in the world's quest to keep up with evolving fashion, we should adorn ourselves with the virtues of our Savior. That He is timeless and never out of date. His fashion's always in style. I might add to that that imitating heaven is always in style. And then men need to see that as a measure of uh, the true, genuine love of God. Thirdly, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Very interesting, the context here is uh, quite intense because it's set within the, against the, uh, if you will, the, uh, the raunchiness of men's quest for physical passion. Beginning in verse 3. I'm not going to go there, but that is the context. And what is totally opposite of that context? 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So we imitate heaven. And by the way, if you know Christ as your Savior, and I trust by His grace you do, uh, you should always keep in mind that in all of the vagaries and exigencies of life, you are beloved of God. Our, our world just desperately needs uh, uh, to understand that Christians see themselves as beloved of God and walk in love just as also Christ loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice as a fragrant aroma. So we imitate heaven. We walk in love just as Christ loved us. Christ is the great comparative transcending the world's definition of love. Because all it has is really cheap. A moment in time. And we possess that which is timeless and eternal and infinite. And the greatest of all dignities in the love of heaven for us in the redemptive love of Jesus Christ. Christ is the great comparative, transcending the world's definition of self-love. Remember reading the description of a man that he was like uh, a single man walking down lover's lane holding his own hand. That's just simply a crude measure, the cheapness of the love of the world. But we have the love of Christ as a beloved people. The world is on some quest for personal significance and value and meaning. We don't have to go down that road. We are, by God's grace, beloved of the Lord. In this context, love is seen in a sacrificial action affecting our redemption. Christ gave himself for us as an offering and sacrifice as a fragrant aroma. Again, as you know, he's under no obligation. It's an act of total sovereign grace. He didn't have to save anyone. But in one majestic, all-transcending act of love, he saved his entire church in one act. Incredible what love can do. He constrained his own liberty and freedom. We always hear, well, I don't have to do that. Well, he could have said that. We would have been lost forever. The offering and sacrifice are expressions of his giving and love gives. Love is sacrificial. It's also an act of giving to others. Because God gave to us. And we want the world see us uh, imitate heaven in the greatest act of giving of all time. He became our sacrifice and substituted himself in our place to satisfy wrath and to secure for us what we could never secure on our own. So he sacrificed himself willingly, freely, constraining everything, setting aside the personal use of his sovereign attributes to save, to save his own, 
to save his friends, to save those whom the Father gave him to save. It's an expression of the greatest act of love of all time. Uh, love is uh, therefore sacrificial. We do, we do have to sacrifice. In our Lord's case, it was the commitment to fulfill uh, the will of his heavenly Father at the total expense of himself. When I was in the army, I used to on occasion uh, visit some part of a military base. Maybe it was a museum or something. You'd always see a phrase from the Gospel of John, greater love hath no man. And he laid down his life for his friends. Primary, inter primary interpretation of that is speaking to the love of Christ. Because he laid down his life for his friends to purchase his church. The reason oftentimes it's on a military base is to inspire sacrifice in the battlefield and perhaps a measure of heroism and conspicuous gallantry. But for us, it's chiefly an acknowledgement of the immensity, the fullness, eternality, infinite greatness of the love of the Savior for those whom he came to save. That's why when Paul uses the word beloved, we should truly apprehend a measure of what it is to be loved of God. The world uh, talks about this word love and uh, and then trashes people and throws them away, moves onward. Not so with respect to the love of our Savior. He gave, he held nothing back. Uh, you and I live in an imitating culture, uh, not just in the world, but it is so as well in the church. We should imitate that as an expression of heaven. We're to imitate heaven so that the world might see what true love is. One of my favorite uh, texts from John 13, 1, a measure of, uh, measure of love in, in the context of loyalty. Kind of wonder, who's, who is loyal? Well, love is loyal. So we read in uh, John 13, 1, expression of, of our, our Lord's uh, loyal love for us. Now before the feast of the Passover, uh, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, and now this is incredible, having loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. The uh, Old Testament concept is captured in the word chesed, which is essentially loyal love. It's used of God, his loyal love to his people. That God is loyal, always loyal. And here Christ loved his own to the end and then he never turned away. So he loved them in the full measure of devotion that included his death. He loved us completely. 
Again, Paul reminds us, you are the beloved. He loved you completely, infinitely, eternally. Nothing withheld or denied to secure redemption and to bring, I love the phrase of the book of Hebrews, to bring what? Many sons to glory. I love the verse in Psalm 73. Where the psalmist is captured, speaks of God in these words. You've guided me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. In state, love of God. Total, complete loyalty. Never giving up. Never forsaking. Never turning away. Now, we see turning away all the time, don't we? Maybe the disloyalty of an employer or the lack of faithfulness on behalf of an employee. In terms of his friends, his own, the beloved, Christ never gave up. So we should have, I think, the, the greatest self-concepts of all the world because we belong to God. We're beloved of Him in eternity past. Before we were even born, He loved us. Framed the concept of our redemption, the coming of the Son. And that's love. So those, I think, are constraining aspects of our behavior towards one another, towards our neighbor. Being patient, kind, thinking of their interests on occasion. So how do we get that? And the obligation, let's give a momentary uh, understanding to the grace of God's provision. Because every time in Scripture when there's a duty, as there's a duty in this text, there's always a divine resource. Always. Because that's the nature of God and His grace. He places duties upon us, but He also provides in grace. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John. Beautiful expression of, of God's provision. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Notice how John begins, Beloved, you are beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The point of the resourcing here is that the new birth is the resource. Having been born by God, a natural expression of the new birth is we love. We love one another. Or to put it in another way, love is the continuing results of the new birth. So that you and I are to live in light of the new birth, that we have been begotten again by the power of God, born by God. And in the new birth, a natural expression is uh, we, we love our neighbor. Uh, another great text that you and I are familiar with, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Again, speaking to resourcing the great obligation, which sometimes is difficult to fulfill. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love. 
Fruit of the Spirit meaning the Spirit of God engenders it in our lives. It's a natural outcome of the presence of the Spirit. Paul has reminded us in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit dwells within us. We are His temple. He lives in us as God Himself. And He bears fruit in our lives. And in fact, throughout our lives, uh, He is uh, uh, increasing that fruit bearing so that the love should become more and more manifest and more and more evident as we imitate heaven. And the world needs to see that. To catch an understanding of what heaven is truly like. When the Savior leads many sons to glory, total, infinite reality, visible, experienced love will envelop all of the sons of glory. So much so that we will be full of joy throughout all time. World without end. How's that? How can that really be? The love of God. And if you will, the fruit bearing aspects of the Spirit. It is in a measure of witness. Uh, it is it's a duty that in this life you will never pay off. So keep loving. Don't stop loving. And sometimes people come and different occasions and exigencies in life and they will, they will bring their empty cup to you and say, I need more. Give them what you can. It's an expression of the love of God. And I don't mean monetarily. Maybe it's time. Uh, maybe it's a card. You can fill in the blanks. But I will tell you, I have this abiding conviction that the world is desperate to see genuine love. And they can see a measure of it in the love of people within the church and our love to those outside of the church. And may God in His grace incite us continually to give more so that men and women, boys and girls, may see Christ in us is the hope of glory.